So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 103, and that'll be our passage that we are going to consider together this morning. If you're using the the Pew Bibles, uh, that's going to be on page 502. Uh, And just as we we tend to do here, uh, I want to invite you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we want to just invite you to grab that black copy right there and take it with you. Let that be our gift to you. Uh, We've got plenty of them here, and we know where to get more of them. So please, if you don't have a a copy of the Bible that you can read in your your own language, uh, feel free to take that with you. Uh, This summer, we have been studying the Psalms. We've been taking different uh, Psalms, uh, sort of the greatest hits of the Psalms, and we've been... uh, each Sunday going through and reading and preaching through the Psalms, and this series is called God's Gift. And so last week we talked about the fact that uh, that's a fitting theme for the Psalms, that the fact that we would look to the Psalms and, and say that it's God's gift, because really the Psalms are God's gift to, to us today, the church. It wasn't just for Old Testament Israel, uh, but it's a gift to us because it teaches us, this, the Psalms teach us uh, about the human experience of worshiping God in a fallen world. And so, you know, when we read the Psalms, it's kind of like uh, looking through a kaleidoscope. You know, you, you, you hold it up, and you turn it a little bit this way, and you see one set of colors, and then you turn it a little bit more, and there's all these new colors, and you turn it again, and there's new colors and new patterns. That's really what the Psalms does, what the Psalms do uh, with, with, relation, with, with regard to God. You know, when we're looking at who God is, each Psalm gives us sort of a different look at who God is, different aspects of his character. You know, we learn about God's justice. We learn about God's mercy. We learn about God's sovereignty and the fact that he's the king who, who reigns and rules over all. And we see the, the celebration that happens, and we also see the mourning and the lamenting uh, that we're called to do. And, and throughout, throughout all of this, we have three questions that the Psalms really help us to consider and to answer. The first question is, who is God? Who is God? And the answer that the Psalms give us is that God is holy. That means that God is, is different. He's different from us as human beings. And he's different from any other thing that we could think about, that we could imagine, and that we could possibly put our hopes in. God is different, and he's exalted. The second question is, who are we? So who are we? Well, we're those that God has created in his own image. He's created us uniquely to bear his image. And yet we've, we've fallen short. We've sinned. And our life in this world is short, and it often feels like a roller coaster. Okay? And so we, we talked about that last week in Psalm 102. I mean, Psalm 102, it got kind of rough, right? Because that was a psalm about lamenting, a psalm about suffering, and the, the experience of riding this roller coaster of there's going to be highs and there's going to be lows and everything in between. But the third question that the psalms really help us to wrestle with And to figure out is how should we approach this holy God? So how should we approach this holy God? Now, as we talked about, you know, looking through the Psalms like we're looking through a kaleidoscope, there's various different aspects of God's character that we learn, but also different aspects of of our approach to God, how we can respond to God that we learn in the Psalms. And so today in Psalm 103, we're going to consider God's love. God's love being uh, uniquely who he is. But then we're also going to learn that our approach to God, our approach, our response to this God, is to remember. To remember God's love and to, to praise him. 
So let's take some time now and read Psalm 103 together. Of David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is a glorious psalm. I was talking with my, my wife uh, earlier this week, and she pointed to the fact that this psalm is sort of like a, a greatest hits. You know, when you look at all the, the, the verses that you see on coffee cups or on throw pillows or wherever, this, this psalm is chock full of those. It's full of those coffee cup verses, right? So in one sense, it's, it's hard to figure out, okay, how do we parse through all of that and figure out what's, what's the theme? What can we learn from God? And, and not just a, a, a cute verse to, to put on a coffee cup to, to, to make ourselves feel better, but how can we really be challenged? How can we really be brought out of ourselves and into the praise and worship of God? Well, as I said at the outset, I think this psalm really teaches us who God is, who we are, and how we should approach God. And there are three things in particular that we learn from this psalm. The first is God's unforgettable kindness. God's unforgettable kindness. Number two, God's unmerited grace. God's unmerited grace. And number three, we learn about God's unfailing love. I think these are the three 
major points that we learn from this psalm. And as you look at the, the superscription, uh, we see that the superscription, that the little uh, message right above verse 1 there, it says, of David. And so what that tells us is that most likely the psalm was written by David. And so who was David? Well, David was the man after God's own heart, or another way to put that is the man of God's own choosing. So God chose David to be the king of his people Israel. So that meant that God was, uh, that, that David was God's representative of, of his people. And so in a religious sense, in a political sense, in a military sense, David was the representative of God's people on earth. And so the fact that we have of David here at the top of the psalm, what that tells us is that the promises of Psalm 103 are for God's people. And so as God's people, the church, what can we learn this morning? Well, we learn about God's unforgettable kindness, God's unmerited grace, and God's unfailing love. So let's go ahead and look at those three points, starting with number one, God's unforgettable kindness. And we're going to see that in verses one through five, God's unforgettable kindness. So let's look again here at verses one and two. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. So in these opening verses, we see our fundamental approach to God. In these words, bless the Lord, O my soul. And I think it'd be helpful for us to, to take a few minutes to understand what these words actually mean. So what does this word bless mean? Well, it, it, it has a connotation to, to kneel. It means to literally kneel down and to give homage. And so in other words, in our modern language, we can say that means to praise God, okay? So we're being called to praise God. But our psalmist doesn't just say that. He says, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul. And so what does that mean, O my soul? Well, I think that's uh, referring to, that, that, that word soul refers to our heart and our mind and our desires. And then in the second part of that verse, he says, all that is within me. So what he's doing there, he's, he's explaining, that's what he means. He means, by oh my soul, he means everything that's inside of me. So my mind, my heart, the, I, I think what he's getting to is we want to pr praise God with our very identity and just the causal core of who we are. The causal core of who we are. I stole that phrase from a, a pastor named Paul Tripp. He talks about the causal core. That's what our heart is. It's everything that we desire, everything that we intend to do, everything that we feel, everything that we think. The identity of who we are is all bound up in that. So what does that all mean? This opening verse, bless the Lord, O my soul, is a call for every individual to a personal, heart-centered, life-shaping worship of God. So this isn't merely just an intellectual pursuit, and it's not merely a, a liturgical pursuit. You know, by that meaning coming to church and, and praying and, and reading the Bible and just kind of going through the motions. No, this is a personal, heart-centered, life-shaping worship of God. So God gets all of our attention. He gets all of our adoration. He gets all of our allegiance. All of us, we're worshiping God. But in the second part of verse 1, he continues. He says, bless his holy name. So what does that mean to bless God's holy name? Well, God's name speaks to his divine attributes and his divine works, all of who God is. So in a sense, what, what we're being called to do here is to worship God 
with all of ourselves for all of who he is. All of us worshiping all of God. That's a big call. When we, when we read this, again, you know, it's, it's easy to, to see this on a, on a throw pillow in your house and go, oh, bless, bless the Lord, oh my soul. That makes me feel nice and warm and fuzzy. But this is actually a big call to worship, to give all of ourselves to God. And in verse 2, he explains how we're to do that. How are we to, to worship God, to praise God? He says at the end of verse 2, forget not all his benefits. Forget not. Brothers and sisters, the, the core of our praise, the substance of our praise is remembering. We're being called to remember who God is and what he does. And not only that, to remember his benefits. So the, this word benefits, I think it speaks to the fact that uh, there's an exclusivity to it. There's an exclusivity to the fact that we have benefits of worshiping God. The, the, all of who God is and all of what he does, it's for you. It's for us. He doesn't just do it and it's just out there. No, he does it specifically for you and for us. So what are these benefits? Well, in verses 3 through 5, we're told what these benefits are that we get from worshiping the Lord. Here in verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So what we're told here is that there are a lot of bad things that we're dealing with. We're dealing with iniquities. We're dealing with diseases. You know, our life was in the pit. But what does God do? What has God done to that? Well, he forgives. He heals. He redeems. God doesn't leave us in, in the, the danger and the death and despair that we would have otherwise suffered apart from him. No, he, he saves us. He restores us. And in, in verse 5, I love this. In verse 5, he tells us that, that God refreshes us so that we feel young again. We feel young again in God's presence. These are benefits. These are wonderful blessings that we derive from being God's people. So I want to ask you a question before we continue here. How are you doing with remembering? How are you doing with remembering this good God and all of his, his benefits? Well, that's why we gather as a church. We gather together every Sunday, and we're going to continue to do so as long as the Lord has us here on earth. We gather every Sunday to remember, to be reminded ourselves, and to, to remind each other. And we do that through our preaching, through our singing, through our reading, through our praying, through our confessing of our faith. And we do that through laughter and through tears. We do that day by day, individually, we do that in relationships. We help each other to remember God's kindness. That's who we are as people, as God's people. We're reminding ourselves of who he is and what he's done and who he is and what he's done for us. Not only that, we're reminded of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is our perfect example of remembering God. So, again, I'm, I'm referring a lot back to our, our other series, our other sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. Um, as we've been seeing, Jesus 
perfectly remembered God's faithfulness. He perfectly remembered God's blessings. And not only that, but he, he also was the, is the one who, who says, you know, I came not to do my own will, but God's will. And so later on in the Gospel of Luke, we haven't gotten there yet in our sermon series, but later on, uh, he's going to be in the garden, and he's going to be staring death in the face. He's looking at the fact that, okay, I'm about to be arrested and crucified. And what does he say? He says, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus, in some very important, crucial ways, we have to look at him and understand that he's our perfect example of obedience, of completely following God's law, and also our perfect, uh, our perfect example of remembering God and understanding God and loving God. You see, I think that the reason this, this command, this call in Psalm 103 to remember, is, the reason I, it's, I think it's so important is because there is a battle for our hearts and minds going on. You, you, we often hear and we often talk about the fact that um, as Christians, we have three enemies, okay? So don't, 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 don't ever let anybody tell you that, well, because you're a Christian, you know, you don't have any enemies. No, we have three big enemies. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three of those enemies want your heart. They want your heart. They want your soul. They want all of you. They want you to forget God. They want you to, to be distracted by the things of this world. They want you to despair. They want you to lose hope. And what we're called to do here is to remember God, to bless the Lord with all of our souls, to forget not his benefits. So we want to remember his benefits. We want to remember God's blessings and what it means to be God's people. And that's the first thing that we've, we've learned here is God's unforgettable God's unforgettable grace. But what we, the second thing we want to learn and we want to consider in our passage is God's unmerited grace. God's unmerited grace. And that's in verses 6 through 14. Let's read here in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. So our, our call to worship that we saw in the first two verses, it started with the individual. So we're called as individuals to worship God with, with, with all of ourselves. And now there's a shift. There's a shift to, from, from the individual to the community. So specifically, what community? Well, I think we're told here in these, in these verses when, when it says, uh, the Lord made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. And so now we're considering... God's blessings to his people, Israel. But specifically, what blessings? What do we learn about how God relates to his, his, his people in Old Testament Israel? Well, we find out in verse 8. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So this verse actually uses the words of, of, of Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. So Exodus 34, 6 and 7, I, I encourage you to write that down. And later on this afternoon, read, have sinned, okay? So God has already brought them out of Egypt, okay? He's brought them into the wilderness. He's given them his law. And now Moses is up on, on the mountain. The people have sinned and made a golden calf. 
So what they've said to God is, you are not enough for us. We don't know where, where Moses went, what's taking him so long, but we're, we're hungry, we're dissatisfied, we're afraid, so we're going to make a golden calf, and maybe that calf will save us. And what does God do? Well, God's merciful. Not only does God decide not to kill them, which he had every right to do, he had every right to do that, but God also gives Moses a, a new set of tablets after he'd thrown them down and destroyed them. God gives him a new set of tablets, and this is what God says to Moses. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So what's happening there? Well, God is showing that he himself is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And it's those words that uh, we have taken from, Psalm th- uh, from Exodus 34 and inserted here for our benefit in Psalm 103 to teach us something about God and his character, not only to his people back then in the wilderness, but to us, to God's people now. Well, continuing here in verse 9, not only do we learn that God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful, here in verse 9 we see this, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our, trans, uh, according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So what we find out here is that uh, somehow our sins don't receive the punishment that we deserve. So again, in the same way that we saw that uh, in vivid display in Exodus 34, we see that stated here, that God doesn't give us the punishment that our sins deserve. And so that's what we mean when we use the word mercy. It's when something bad that we deserve is withheld from us. So God withholds what we deserve for our sins. But not only that, again, moving on to verse 11, he says this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We've talked about the fact that in the Psalms we often have um, these, these poetic analogies or poetic metaphors that are used to connect with our hearts and stir up our imaginations. So not only our, our brain, but our imaginations to, to see who God is. And right here we have a, a wonderful, compelling vision of that. Uh, he says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, and as far as the east is from the west, that's how far our sins are away from us. And that's how great God's love is to us. So uh, if you can imagine, I mean, anybody can do this, you know, you can go outside today and you say, okay, I'm going to try to touch the east. I'm going to reach this way. I'm going to try to reach this way and touch the west. You can't do it. It it, it keeps going. And that's what the psalmist tells us here is that there is nothing left for us to pay. God has completely removed the power and consequences of our sins from us. And so God's not holding a, ju- a grudge against you today. If you are following Jesus, if you're clinging to him, if you're seeking refuge in Jesus, 
God's not holding a grudge against you. That's amazing. That's, that's life-changing. The fact that God has completely removed the power and consequences of your sin. So at this point, we've gone through all these verses. We need to ask, how? So how can God be perfectly just and perfectly merciful in the way that he described here in, in, uh, in verse 8? Excuse me, in, yeah, in verse 8. And, you know, going back to Exodus 34, the God who is not going to clear the guilty, yet he's a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How can both of those hold together at the same time? How can God so completely remove my sin from me that it, it has no more grip on me? How? Well, the answer is this. It's Jesus. Jesus perfectly embodies all of God's holiness, all of God's holiness, all, all his attributes, God's justice, his mercy, his love, his sovereign power. Everything that we see in God, we see in Jesus. And that's wonderfully good news. Because the truth of the matter is, as we've seen laid out here in, in this psalm, is that while God created us for relationship with him, and he created us to perfectly know him and to enjoy him and to give glory to him with our lives, we failed to do that. We've rebelled. Our spiritual parents are Adam and Eve. And though we've never met them face to face, we have so much in common with them. And from the day that we were born, our lives have been marked by going our own way, away from God, running from God. And so we deserve to be separated from God's mercy, separated from God's love, separated from his grace. And yet, just as we saw here, just as we saw here in, in verse 10, God doesn't deal with us according to our sins. What he should do is give us that eternal separation from, from him, from his goodness. And yet what he's done is he sent his son, Jesus, to live that perfect life that we failed to live, to die a, a death, a sinner's death on the cross that he didn't deserve, but he did it for us as payment. The scriptures call it a, a propitiation. And what that means is that all of God's wrath that was reserved for us was exhausted on Jesus. Exhausted. And at the cross, we see the intersection, the intersection of, of God's perfect justice, His perfect love. How can God be the one who doesn't let a single sin go and just punishes sin and punishes sin until it's gone, and yet also be the same one who has mercy to his people. Steadfast love to children's children. How can God be both of those? Well, we see it in Jesus. We see it on the cross, and the resurrection, and the, the new life that's promised us in Jesus. So I want to implore you, if, if this isn't a hope that you know, if you're not following this Jesus today, or if you just want to learn more, I want to, I want to implore you to, to talk to somebody here. 
But more important than, than talking to us, I mean, we can, all we can do is point you to the source of life. I want to implore you to today, just, just pray. Just ask God to enlighten your eyes, enlighten the eyes of your heart to see this Jesus and to follow this Jesus by faith. Because that's where life is found. That's where God is found. It's in Jesus. You want to know about God's justice, about God's mercy, about his grace? It's all there in Jesus. And he's the only means of salvation. The scriptures say that there's no name under heaven by which men are saved. So I want to implore you today to run to Jesus. And for my brothers and sisters here at, at, at FBC, for those of us who do know this hope, this is the good news that we preach. The good news that we preach is God's perfect justice displayed in Jesus and God's perfect mercy displayed in Jesus. It's both of those. I think a lot of times when we preach the gospel, and, and this is part of the, 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 the issue that I hear people, uh, when, I, when I talk with uh, people who aren't Christians, a lot of the issue that they take with, with Christians is that, you know, on the one hand, you guys are all fire and brimstone. All you want to talk about is, is judgment. All you want to talk about is hellfire. All you want to talk about is the justice that's coming to sinners. And then on the other hand, you have the Christians who all, all you guys want to talk about is just, you know, you know, the mercy and the kindness of God. But in my life, I'm, I'm seeing God has just given me a lot of hard things to deal with. And you're telling me about a God of mercy. I've got things going on in my life, and there are so many things going on in the world of people suffering. I can't connect with that God of mercy. Our call as a church is to preach both and to joyfully preach both, to joyfully rejoice in, in the fact that God is just. He's merciful. He's both of those things. And he's shown us such a, a wonderful example, a wonderful picture, a powerful picture of that in Jesus. So, so preach both. I don't know if your tendency is to go on, on the side of, of justice and, you know, you know, when, when you're, you're, you're preaching to people, hey, I just want to let them have it. I want, to, I want this person to really be convicted of their sin. Do, by all means, do that, but also preach grace, preach mercy, because that's the heart of the gospel. It's both of those. So there's one more thing for us to notice here, and that's this, that God's mercy to us is based completely on his grace and not based on anything that we have done. So if we look here at verse 13, we find this. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God loves us and provides for us like a father provides for his children. And it's, it's nothing that we deserve. So, you know, parents... I could stand here and ask you, okay, think about each of your children and what each one of your children has done to deserve your love. What have they done? If I ask you that question, that's absurd. That's a, that's a ludicrous, offensive question for me to ask, right? Because these are my children. It's my joy, my, my, my privilege to parent them and to love them. They don't have to earn my love, earn my provision. And as parents, we don't lord that over our kids, right? We don't 
uh, say that, okay, you need to, to earn your, your place in this family. No. Your place in this family is secure always because you're our child. We love you. Is that how you're thinking about God today? Because that's what the psalm tells us, that God loves us like that. God loves us like that. And so that should really shape our lives. Our lives should be shaped by the unmerited grace of God, not this self-righteous pursuit to earn God's love. Our whole lives, not just from the point of salvation, but all throughout our lives, it's just going to be shaped individually and together as a church by God's unmerited, undeserved grace. I love this, uh, this quote by 16th, 16th century uh, theologian John Calvin. He says, If the resurrection of the soul from the grave is the first step of spiritual life, what room for self-glorification is left to, for man? What room is there? The first step to knowing God is his, his grace to us, his mercy to us, and that was undeserved. And I got news for you, that's our whole lives. Our whole lives, every day, every breath that we take is grace, it's mercy, and it's undeserved. And so that should fill us with joy, that should fill us with, with hope, knowing that it's not ultimately about us securing our own place, but God has secured us. So that, that was the second thing that we learned from this passage, God's unmerited grace. And our third and final point today is God's unfailing love. So that's verses 15 through the end of our passage. So let's look at verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children and to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So if you remember, for those of you who were here last week, uh, we saw this, this contrast that was made in, in Psalm 102, uh, a contrast of on the one hand, you have human beings who are weak and, and finite and limited. And then on the other hand, you have God. What's God like? Well, he's, he's everlasting. He's sovereign over all things. And so what, what does that mean? What, what's the point of, of, of pointing that out here? Well, I think it's to tell us this, that our security and our hope aren't found in our own strength, our own goodness, or our own faithfulness, but in God, who is unchanging and unyielding in his goodness. God is unchanging and unyielding in his goodness. And so the mistake that we often make, I think, I, I, I know it certainly applies to me, and I think for a lot of Christians, is uh, we make this mistake of thinking that the, the power of the gospel is, is in us. The power of the gospel is in the strength of our own faith. So the stronger our own faith, the, 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 uh, the, the more faith that we have, well, that means the gospel then is dependent on our power, our, 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 on our, our own faith. But I think what we actually see here is that the power of the gospel resides completely in God. And he's the one who brings us from death to life. And so again, you know, going back to the gospel of Luke, you know, you may recall in Luke 17, uh, the, the disciples, they ask Luke, or they ask Jesus, they say, Jesus, increase our faith. 
And what does Jesus say? He says, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could point to a tree and tell it to be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So what's Jesus doing? Is he saying that we can magically uproot trees and, and, and put them in the ocean? No, no, no. He's, what he's saying is, it's not about the amount of our faith or the strength of our faith, but it's the fact that our faith is there, our faith is real, and God can, can use that, and God will use that, because he's powerful. And so, if you're weak in faith today, if you're struggling with sin or with doubt or with suffering or whatever it is you're going through, and you, you just feel weak and frail, man, God is, is he's merciful and he's gracious to you today. And what I want you to hear from this song is that God is powerful. And he has the power to bring death to life. He's done that for you if you, if you believe in Jesus, if you follow Jesus. And he will continue to do that for you day by day. So just cling to him by faith. Just whatever faith you have, cling to him. It's not, it's not a bad thing to ask for more faith. That's a good prayer to pray. And I believe that if you pray that, God's going to answer that prayer. But I want you to know that if you feel weak, God is your strength. So in verse 19, we read this, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. God is described here as the sovereign king. So he, he exercises total authority as to how and when and to whom he shows mercy. And so our own weakness shouldn't be a discouragement to us, but it should be an opportunity for us to, to gratefully rest in God's fatherly love for us. This is who God is and who we are. So God is our father and our king who loves us and provides every gift that we need. And we are his precious children, forever loved and united to him by faith. So friends, I want to conclude our time today with the final verses of this psalm. And this psalm closes just as it began, with a, a call to worship God for who he is. But in those, in those first couple of verses, we saw that there was a call for the individual, for us as individuals to worship God for who he is with all of who we are. And here there's another shift from the individual to universal praise of God. Here in verse 20, we see this. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What we see here is that everything that exists in God's created order exists to declare his supreme glory. So in verse 20, we see that it's angels. In verse 21, all God's hosts. In verse 22, all of God's works. And so the emphasis that we see here is that not only are these, these things, these entities, praising God and, and, and glorifying God by declaring his worthiness, but there's obedience to God in carrying out his designs. So in verse 20, these angels, they're mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word, in verse 21, these hosts are those who are ministers who do his will. In verse 22, these works are those who are, uh, th these works exist 
and they're seen in all places of his dominion. So God's in control here. And everything and everyone who exists is meant to declare the glory of God with our mouths and to declare the glory of God by what we do. So worshiping God here is not seen as a a passive activity, but there's active obedience. So as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, that's exactly what we do. We obey God actively by doing exactly what Psalm 103 has called us to do, and that's to remember. We celebrate the Lord's Supper by remembering this Jesus, who through his perfect obedience brought us into God's family. So let's do that together. Let's remember, not only today, but in all of our lives, our obedience to God is to remember this Jesus who, through his life, death, resurrection, and reign, points us to everything that God is and gives us a relationship with God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise because you are worthy of it, Lord. God, as we've seen your justice displayed, we've seen your mercy displayed, we've seen your grace that we don't deserve in our lives and in the world, Lord, we are in awe of who you are. Father, we we give you thanks and praise for Jesus. For displaying yourself as the one who is so good that all sin will be punished. And yet, you love us and you cherish us as as your people. And your design was not for us to, to die and to suffer that punishment, but to be in your presence forever. So, Lord, we, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in your son, Jesus, as we prepare to go to the Lord's table now. Father, we just ask that you would give us a fresh remembrance of your mercy and your love to us. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.